On today's episode, I talk with Haley Brazier. Haley is a graduate student in the Department of History at the University of Oregon. Her research is situated at the nexus of environmental history and public history, the study of water resources, public lands, and the built environment. Her dissertation examines the historical development of ocean bottom technologies along the Northeast Pacific seafloor. On this episode, Haley and I embark offshore. We talk the coastal sea and how underwater cables and undersea construction projects can destabilize coastal environments. Okay, so hi, Haley. Welcome. Um, Thanks for being with me today. Uh, So you're a PhD candidate at University of Oregon, and you study seafloor technologies in the Pacific Northwest, which is a very interesting and cool topic. I'm very excited to talk to you about it. But I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit more about the field you work in and how you would describe your own work. Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to chat with you. Uh, so yeah, I'm an environmental historian sort of most broadly. And and a lot of people I think probably don't know what environmental history is or, or have ever met an environmental historian. But what we do is we study human interactions with the environment in past times is pretty much the most simple definition I can provide. And the field has been around for for many decades. And and we tend to be very interdisciplinary with our research. So we like to study, you know, history of technologies, of culture and different parts of society and and environment, ecology, et cetera, et cetera. So for me in particular, I've narrowed into studying um, marine environmental Mm -hmm. history. So adding another adjective (laughs) on there, which means I'm interested in how people have used the ocean, changed or affected the ocean, been affected by the ocean, um, how they have polluted it, harmed it, protected it, uh, you know, all sorts of these kind of questions. So my research is part of a sort of growing field called the blue humanities, which I think your work would probably be part of that as well. So definitely broader than just historians, but there's a whole field of us of humanity scholars who want to understand the ocean. We do draw on science a lot, um, but those aren't the only resources we have to, um, to understanding how humans see and use the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- I, I wanted to talk to you, especially because I would say that we both work in the blue humanities, which is this kind of somewhat new and blossoming field. And it's interesting how much overlap you get in a lot of different disciplines um, kind of approaching these issues. But something that I feel like unites a lot of blue humanities folks is just an interest in or love of the ocean or the sea. Mm -hmm. So I guess something that I would be interested in too is what brought you to this topic or what brought you to the blue humanities and studying the ocean specifically? Yeah. And that's actually a really great question for me because I grew up in Kansas, okay. uh, which is about <laughs> as far away from the ocean as you can, you can literally get in the mm-hmm. United States. And, 
you know, I had visited the ocean when I was a kid, like on vacations and mm-hmm. whatnot. But, uh, you know, I remember like during like free reading time in elementary school, there was this book that I would always like flock over to and grab. And it had all these pictures of marine life. And there was this one in particular that I was like obsessed with, which was a whale that had all these barnacles on it. And so I was, my perception of the ocean growing up was that it was extremely foreign place, um, enchanting, but also dangerous, but it's scary. Mm. Um, And so as I sort of wound my way to the West Coast, I lived in Colorado for a while and I studied water law, like the history of irrigation and water Mm. law and uh, for my master's degree. And as I was moving further west and heading to the University of Oregon for my PhD, I was interested in applying some of those same questions about the control of water resources and taking them from freshwater and putting them or thinking about them for the ocean. And so that was my original intent when I when I got to the University of Oregon. And you know, as I was doing more history of science, history of oceanography reading, um, marine environmental history reading. Uh, you know, I began to notice that there was sort of this piece missing that was so interesting to me, which was the history of the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. And that might sound really crazy to someone thinking like, well, humans don't live on the seafloor, which is true, uh, they <laughs> do not. but a lot of their technologies um, are down there. And also, you know, a lot of debris and trash and other unwanted things, but also a lot of very, very valuable items uh, are currently sitting on the ocean floor. And so I started to sort of think, it's not just these technologies that are really important, but that there was like a major shift in the 19th century, particularly in the United States, and how people started to think about the ocean floor, how they started to discover it, uh, how they started to to think about territorializing it, owning it, using it. Um, That was really a major change from how people had used the ocean for thousands of years before that. Mm. So so the seafloor is like this unique space that's a little bit different than the water column or the surface of the ocean in terms of how it's used and how it's perceived in American history. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I've talk to a few people at this point um, for this podcast. And it's been really interesting to me um, how many people kind of came to the ocean or were from somewhere that is considered kind of landlocked, you would say, and kind of came to the ocean in their, you know, twenties or thirties, but had these associations from early on. And so I just think that's so fascinating kind of your trajectory. Um, and another thing you said, which is just fascinating to me, is that idea of, you know, we don't live on the ocean floor, uh, but all so many of our technologies are run through there. And so I was hoping to talk to you about um, this, this article about Facebook leaving drilling equipment on the ocean floor. And I guess part of my question to you is, you know, we have so many of these technologies running through the sea, but also because it's this kind of, you know, alien space, it can kind of obscure that, I guess. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on just, you know, that kind of ability to abandon equipment and just move forward and assume that no one will see it or notice. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's Actually, can I add something about Absolutely. earlier? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, you know, that's what I was talking about having like sort of a fear of the ocean or mm-hmm. being enchanted by it. Like that tends to be like an extremely sort of Euro-American yeah. perception of the sea. You know, mm-hmm. it's not universal. Like a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous communities and uh, who lived around the Pacific or, you know, other in the Arctic or, you know, the ocean is not, has not historically been seen as, mm-hmm. Um, foreign or different or away, right? It's mm-hmm. homeland. Yeah, definitely. And same with the coast, right? The coast was never like a boundary mm-hmm. between land and sea. It was part of, it was like an entrance between the two and also a part of the homeland. So I would, yeah, I would just say that is almost like a caveat of seeing my own background as this very sort of, I don't know, Euro-American Midwestern perception of the ocean, you know, that has yeah. a sort of historical, um, historically significant stance, but, uh, I'll move away from that tangent. (laughs) Um, no, I mean, I think that's kind of related to the question I was thinking about with the drilling equipment. Cause I feel like, you know, those kind of the companies that are putting technologies in the seafloor rely on that sort of assumption of this as, you know, an alien space or that Euro-American separation of land and sea. So I do think it's really interesting, you know, how we kind of sometimes, like you said, you know, assume this separation and how sometimes that can be utilized by companies to kind of destroy those spaces. Yeah. And the, you know, historically, like the best seafloor technologies are one's that are not seen. And by best, I mean the ones that um, don't create as much ruckus Mm -hmm. (laughs) among society, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when there's anything sort of visually apparent from the coastline, so for example, like offshore oil rigs, people get really upset about those, particularly because they can see them. So they're reminded Mm -hmm. of the kind of activity that's happening in the ocean. But with say undersea cables, um, when they're almost impossible to find, um, let alone, you would never be able to see one, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're out in the ocean and they bury them when they get to the beach. So you're walking over them and you don't even know it. Um, the, the industry undersea cable industry has really, I think, counted on that and benefited from that privacy and secrecy Mm -hmm. of cables being, um, hidden and and have been able to create this really really large network of cables without most people in society really knowing that they exist mm-hmm. and most of the time it's pretty fine like I'm in terms of environmental impacts I would say and I'm happy to talk about that more because that's mm-hmm. part of my research um, and for those people listening who maybe don't know there are a lot of cables in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, it's actually quite a long history. So uh, people started to install cables, trans transoceanic cables. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, good. I mean, 1850s was the first attempt to do the first transatlantic cable. Mm-hmm. First trans-Pacific cable went in in 1902. Um, and so since then, there's been telegraph cables installed and then into the 20th century coaxial or telephone cables. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the end of the uh, 20th century and then nowadays we have fiber optic cables, which is 
how we're doing, you know, our international internet and phone calls. And, and so a lot of people think our internet usage is based on satellites, but it's really not like almost 100% of our mm -hmm. global traffic is traveling through these cables. Wow. Um, so on the West coast alone, there are a few dozen cables that land on our shores uh, and then there's, of course, a ton of different types of cables that, like, say, run electricity between an oil rig and, and shore or something like that. So there's many different types of undersea cables. Um, and I think what's interesting about this Facebook case uh, is that, should I give some background on the Facebook? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so back in 2020, a Facebook subsidiary reported to the state of Oregon that, oh, whoops, you know, we were installing a cable, which the state of Oregon mm -hmm. knew about and had approved, you know, previously, but there had, something had gone wrong with installing this cable near the shore. Um, and uh, the company planned to go back and fix it. Mm -hmm. The major issue being that they, turns out, left a lot of equipment directly on the seafloor and also like drilling liquids in, in the seafloor. Wow. And so what they were doing is, kind of like a fracking method where you like do like a borehole into the end of the sea floor mm -hmm. and that's where they're going to install the cable below ground pretty much and they do mm -hmm. that so it protects the cable from like ship anchors and fishing activity and, and whatnot which you know which is dangerous for both the cable and any ship that might snag it so it's perfectly normal uh, that the that cables are being buried as they approach land in particular in shallower waters. Um, but what was most controversial about this, of course, is that these materials were sort of left on the ocean bottom uh, and nobody knew about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it created a bit of public uproar about like, well, you can't just leave this stuff out there. Is it going to harm, you know, fish or corals or any, you know, and, yeah. and the company Facebook subsidiary said, no, it should be fine. <laughs> we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll go try to reinstall or fix this or, you know, and then Oregon said, uh, you'll need to go get this stuff out. But I think there's some debate on like, how do you get sort of like these drilling liquids out of the seafloor? It was many, many gallons. It sounds like it was contained, mm -hmm. but the question being with any type of marine infrastructure like this, like it's actually quite hard to get all of this stuff pulled out um, yeah. once it's installed. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the background of the sort of Facebook Jupiter cable debacle and this sort of um, trash debris on the seafloor. But what was interesting for me with that case is that is that it kind of opened people's eyes to like, oh yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of materials on the ocean floor, um, including like, you know, toxic waste dumps and from years and years ago. I mean, that place is cluttered. It's mm -hmm. crowded with stuff, uh, both in use and not in use. Uh, and so I think it kind of, yeah, opened a window into picturing the seafloor as a, as a busy place that humans use. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember reading, I think a month ago about some DDT barrels that they found offshore as well. And it has been kind of interesting. I feel like, you know, partially I didn't know, honestly, somewhat how many technologies were in the seafloor. I study, you know, coasts. I do study in some ways, open ocean, but it's been fascinating to me how many 
people are now starting to kind of recognize what you're talking about, that there's so much, you know, waste on the ocean floor, even though we have talked about plastics and microplastics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess something I'm also interested in is how you see, you know, these seafloor technologies intersecting with the coast or the near coast. Um, because I, I think that's, that's been fascinating to me. Um, we see coastal erosion as a very landed process, but a lot of the things that are affecting coastlines are also coming from those near seafloors. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a historical perspective mm-hmm. and something I researched for my dissertation is like the very, very earliest offshore drilling in Southern California, which actually began in the 1890s. Mm. And offshore is kind of a strong term. It's like on the beach, yeah. you know, in the intertidal zone. So they, and they didn't use the term offshore back then either. That didn't come around to like the mid 20th century. So, mm-hmm. um, but they would have called, they called it like drilling on the seafloor or, you know, I don't know, I might call it coastal drilling, but what's, so I, I tend to think of the relationship between the seafloor and coast from that infrastructure perspective. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about Southern California is that nowadays there's still this issue of what they call legacy wells. Mm-hmm. And these are these like kind of small circles, wells that are still puncturing the beach and the intertidal zone. Um, from this early era of sort of seashore oil drilling, which again, started in the late 1890s and then goes well into the 20s and 30s. And it wasn't until really till after World War II that they start drilling further and further offshore to what we understand today as those kind of, you know, independent Mm -hmm. rigs out there. But uh, so what they would do in this earlier period was they would build these kind of like piers or wharves mm-hmm. straight from the beach or straight on the beach. And they would put a derrick on it and just drill down from there. Wow. And uh, and so they might be in just right above the tide line or in the intertidal zone. Maybe they're like, a, you know, dozen feet of water, that sort of thing. And uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of wells. Um, all up and down the Southern California coastline, places like, you know, Summerlin, Goleta, uh, Huntington Beach. I, I think Huntington Beach actually had less in terms of offshore or, you know, past the beach line into the intertidal zone. But an issue now is that a lot of these are these wells, when they left them, they just abandoned them. And so they would like maybe even stick trash down in, into them or leave them all together. And they've been sort of spewing oil a little bit at a time um, for, you know, a century. Um, And so the California State Lands Commission has actually spent millions of dollars trying to plug some of these legacy wells uh, because sometimes there's that oil residue that comes out of them. But what I find to be so interesting about this is that, you know, most of our oil pollution comes from consumers like you and me Mm -hmm. on land, you know, like a good over 50 some percent of oil pollution in the ocean is crossing that coastal divide, Mm -hmm. draining off the streets, dripping out of our cars, um, dripping out of of boats and, and, and entering the ocean that way, not necessarily from the, the sites of offshore oil drilling or these old wells that are leaking. And so, 
it kind of reminds me of the issue of like the coast, coastal erosion now in Southern California and building seawalls. It's like, it. I think it's interesting that people tend to focus on a very specific issue at a specific place. Like let's spend a million dollars plugging this tiny well that's like the size of a Coca-Cola can, mm-hmm. but really not contributing that much to the larger pollution issues that are affecting the ocean versus the bigger issue, which is our consumption of fossil fuels and pesticides, fertilizers on land. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I hopefully I'm making sense here, but absolutely, yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's no, that's completely interesting. And I do think yeah, it comes back to this, what you were talking about earlier, that kind of assumption of divide between land and sea that just has been constructed yes. uh, through especially these kind of like, you know, capitalist forms of relation or, you know, um, or yeah. And the boundary thinking, does not exist. Boundary does not exist. Yeah. It's perceived in the mind. It's yeah, not it's real. completely <laughs> perceived. And And also, I think that it's going to be clearer and clearer as sea level rise continues to happen, as coasts continue to erode and crumble, that this divide does not exist. And Mm -hmm. I was just thinking while you were talking about, um, I think a few years ago, I think I was in Florida, and I didn't realize that certain sunscreens uh, we're bleaching the coral reefs. So it's not just, you know, warming oceans. It's not just sea level rise or acidity. It's also people going to these areas, huge amounts of tourism, and just the simple thing of wearing sunscreen into the ocean to look at the coral also is affecting, you know, how quickly these coral reefs are degrading. So it is it is fascinating the ways in which these things are intertwined, but we like to think that we can keep them separate in some way. Yeah. And, and again, that's a very, you know, Euro-American <laughs> yeah. perception that, that there's some hard boundary that exists mm-hmm. right on the beach that separates land and sea. Definitely. You know, I think it's around 14% of the American coastline is fortified by concrete. And that's huge. Yeah. That's so much, you know. And, and also like about 50% of the United States is original marshlands are gone mm-hmm. at this point. They've been filled in, they've been drained mm-hmm. and the marshlands are like really actually the best boundary, yep. <laughs> you know, between land and sea in terms of protecting both land and sea from things that like to go in between. Mm-hmm. And so without those marshlands around anymore, that is the best natural border that's gone. And it is, so it is interesting to to read about people wanting to build seawalls and Mm -hmm. fight for the right to live right on the ocean uh, and build these sort of hard fortifications because ultimately the ocean will meet you at your front door. Mm -hmm. It's only a matter of time. And of course that time is sort of quickening at this point with sea level rise. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of people who build homes and businesses and floodplains. Like at some point the water will come back, you know, but what type of historical knowledge we we have as a community, you know, what people know or don't know when they're purchasing these homes, you know, do they understand 
the dangers of living right on the ocean, you know, because that seawall really won't protect you forever. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it has a lot of, you know, ecological problems for the marine life on the other side of it. So it is really interesting. It's such a big problem with no perfect solution, but, you know, fortifications in the ocean, technologies in the ocean, infrastructure in the ocean, it just doesn't last forever. The ocean mm -hmm. is very strong, uh, has a lot of wearing effects mm -hmm. and, and human attempts to, to build things into the sea usually don't last forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because you know, these hardened structures actually heighten coastal erosion in a lot of cases because it interrupts that kind of natural uh, erosion cycle that happens on coastlines. And so people trying to kind of harden certain areas of the coast is actually heightening coastal erosion. And we see these logics that don't align with what a lot of practitioners are actually trying to fight for, or a lot of people who are from the area, have lived in the area, or, you know, indigenous communities who have a very long history of, you know, working with the natural processes to, to protect coastlines. And yeah, I guess another question I have for you is, you know, what can environmental history, what can historical accounts bring to the table? How can it help us, um, think through these problems of today. I'm thinking about literary studies and how I've read a lot of newspaper articles and books from the early 20th century where you have these developers describing coral reefs as useless or worthless or um, as this kind of wilderness space in order to build and construct over that area. And so I'm wondering if similarly, you know, giving that environmental con or historical context, you think kind of shapes still today how we view these spaces or how we approach them. Environmental historians have done a lot of work, uh, particularly on like the draining of marshlands and coastal areas or the attempts to sort of shape coastlines like Connie Chang's book, um, Shaping the Shoreline. That's a really good book for anyone interested in Monterey and California in general. Um, we have a lot of great histories also uh, uh, East Coast attempting like Narragansett Bay, trying to make that less marshy and more of a clear line between ocean and land, you know, because it's easier to sort of map and live right on a hard fortified edge mm -hmm. or so it seems. Yes. Uh, and then ultimately, there are all these major environmental issues that, that come back. Um, there's also environmental histories that talk about, you know, damming rivers and how that ultimately affects the ocean, right? Like sometimes we forget yeah. that rivers feed into oceans, you know, so what happens upriver, even if it's hundreds of miles, can still affect uh, that marine community, the beach. You know, you have less sand, for example, coming down and being delivered to the beach, and you get this issue of like dead beaches and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, environmental historians have have um, written a lot about this. You know, it's it's a little bit sad though because I can't always tell that people are paying attention, right? Yeah, that they're reading their histories because I, like these attempts with building seawalls. Um, you know, it's just I'm I'm not an expert in seawalls, mm -hmm. but uh, attempts to build fortifications against the ocean are are really 
in rivers or boundaries on any sort of environment um, largely just don't work for very long. Mm -hmm. It's not a permanent solution. Um, The best solution would be to move the humans, not the ocean. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Of course, people have a lot of financial stake in these, in these things, and it's very complicated. Yes, definitely. I think that that's one of the most interesting things I've come across is like you said, we forget that these processes are very interconnected. So if you dam up river, you're going to disrupt sedimentation that usually would kind of restore the coastal erosion that's happening and on the flip side, you have things like sea level rise, which are dis- or are kind of destabilizing these coastlines. So these processes are all kind of interconnected. And like you said, these environmental histories can sometimes give that context of how things are linked together or how they come together in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think especially, you know, this is a testament to that. You do work on the seafloor, but everything we've talked about today has in some way or could be connected to coasts or coastal erosion where these things really do affect one another. And it's important to um, to stay attentive to those links that you're pointing out. Oh, for sure. And, you know, on the seafloor, you know, all the way, I can consider seafloor, at least for my dissertation, anywhere where seawater touches. Absolutely. Um, so that could even be, you know, just the high tide mark mm-hmm. along the beach. But yeah. uh, that all that seafloor from like the intertidal zone out into the continental shelf, I mean, all of that sediment comes from land. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to think like, oh, it must be the ocean sort of depositing the sand here. Mm-hmm. But in reality, like if you're on a beach and you want to understand why it's rocky or pebbly or really mm-hmm. soft sand, turn around and face the land because that is where uh, these products came from. You know, mm-hmm. it's over time, rocks have fallen from land. They've be- been broken apart in the case of really fine sand and they've reached the ocean and then the ocean will redisperse it of course mm-hmm. but but there's this really crucial connection between um what's available to that coastal area the continental shelf and the intertidal zone uh, and it, it it's from land it, it everything from land eventually reaches the ocean whether it be you know our water pollution whatever it's all heading down that way Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's They're totally interconnected. Totally interconnected. There's a couple of scientists I read an article and they they said something like, you know, the edge of the ocean is not like the hard edge of a bathtub, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much more fluid than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very important. I think that we always remember that. Um, yeah. So I I also like to ask, you know, a lot of people on this podcast do. Where do we go from here? Do you have any sort of feeling of, you know, this is where we need to be heading or this is what we need to be doing if if we're going to address these problems, especially since like we've been talking about, it seems like a lot of people are starting to pay attention in ways that maybe 20 years ago, it was much more hidden. So yeah, where do we go from here? Yeah, Uh <laughs> I think first and foremost, people would 
is just knowledge, you know, um, knowledge of the various industries that are using the seafloor currently. So not only do we have undersea cables, I think there's like something like 621,000 miles of undersea cables at this point. And that's only going to increase like that industry just grows and grows and grows. Yeah. Um, those in particular are not, don't tend to be cause a lot of environmental effects in comparison to say like offshore drilling, Mm -hmm. but I would encourage people to look at the bigger picture of the industry. So like our internet usage, those connected data centers, data centers on land use a ton of energy. Mm -hmm. Like in the U S the data centers alone use about 2% of the energy consumption. Mm -hmm. And so there's a connection again between land and sea of like these seafloor technologies and what we're doing on land. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also increased mining. I mean, you know, uh, for like manganese nodules or other sort of precious metals, that has been a fear that mining is just going to explode, you know, seafloor mining um, for, for, you know, definitely in the 20th century. It never really took off just because Mm -hmm. it's super expensive and very hard Mm -hmm. to uh, like manganese nodules in particular, which are these like little hard rocks, kind of like the size of a potato that have like manganese and nickel and things like that in them. Um, Those are very expensive to mine, but the machines are getting better. And um, and so that's increasing all over the world oceans. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something to be aware of. Uh, At one point, you know, the precious metals in your cell phone, where did those come from? They come from the seafloor. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the methods that they used to get to mine those precious metals? Because most of these machines that are sort of like, you know, skirt, slurping up yeah. <laughs> these metals from the seafloor, I mean, are extremely destructive for all other sort of benthic life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. Um, of course, there's offshore oil and gas drilling, mm-hmm. uh, which again is, is, increasing into places maybe like the Arctic, but it's dangerous, it's expensive, Mm -hmm. it's hard um, for the companies doing it as well. So there's this cost benefit analysis. Um, There's that, there's, you know, there's wind farm. I mean, there's other things that people see as as a more positive thing. So like Mm -hmm. wind farms, uh, even those, there are some issues that could be associated with it. So like, will animals get caught up in these machines and die? Mm -hmm. There's some question as to, the electricity cables that stretch from say a wind turbine out in the ocean mm-hmm. to land, they create a, they kind of mess with the electromagnetic field around them. Mm-hmm. So are they affecting fish and sharks and other uh, marine species um, that already depend uh, on an electromagnetic magnetic field in the mm-hmm. ocean to sort of go about their daily lives? Uh, so there's that issue, even with renewable energy. Um, I'm just trying to think what else there's like a lot of harvesting of sand to make, Mm -hmm. you know, concrete on land. People don't quite think about that. I think either. So there's just, and then of course, fisheries, you know, so I think just awareness, you know, when you're next time you're, you know, eating salmon or halibut or, or using your cell phone or sending an email to your friend overseas, uh, you're using the seafloor and, Mm -hmm. and you may not be aware of it. Um, so yeah, that would be my my first step at least is like just broaden awareness of how we use how we use the ocean bottom. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't know about minerals. That that's where the minerals for cell phones came from was seafloor mining. So 
even well, I, I don't know something or I don't know what percentage is at this point. Okay. Um, it's probably not huge, huge, but it could increase in the future. Yeah. yeah and think- it does make you just kind of re- rethink something or consider it differently when you are using these technologies that it's easy to just, you know, pop on your cell phone and not really think about those, those connections of where, where those materials are coming from. Yeah. And I think a good 98% of marine life, mm-hmm. marine species live near on the ocean floor. Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 the ocean floor is important to humans, but it's mm-hmm. also very important to marine life. And, and there's also, I think a lot of like carbon sinks going on into the seafloor in particular, like there's a lot of activity on the ocean bottom mm-hmm. from an ecological perspective, from a technological perspective, and from a, like a, a legal economic perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very busy place and we have to be aware of the other <laughs> uh, animals, flora and fauna that also got there first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I like to end with the same question for everyone, which is, do you have a favorite part of the either California or Oregon coast, um, that you just love to visit or that you feel like is special in some way? Yeah, I think, well, I live in Oregon. And Mm -hmm. so my favorite thing about Oregon is the rocky coastline, you can see so many different tide pools here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what makes for a really sort of luxurious beach vacation for human tourists, which is like sort of flat, broad sand, yeah. is actually not great for the marine life that live in the intertidal zone. Like it's very dangerous to try it. No, you, there's a reason you don't see a lot of creatures on top of the sand. Mm-hmm. They bury down in or they, they follow the receding tide line. And so here in Oregon, because we have all this rocky coastline, there there's opportunity for this marine life to find a safe spot Mm -hmm. uh, during the coming and going of the tide. And so it's really fun to see the intertidal life that is not necessarily visible in other beaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, you, it's just a rainbow of, of colors, you know, the sea stars, the anemones, the, barnacles, you know, everyone is sort of competing for space and it's actually sort of a kill or be killed kind of world, but for a human, it looks really beautiful and like luscious, you know? So that's probably just the tide pools here, you know, like I'll go down to Coos Bay or um, there's like seal rock. That's not too far from me. And, and just, I don't know, see like a different world when the tide is out. That's one of my favorites. And then also in Oregon, the Oregon passed in 1967, the Oregon beach bill, which Mm -hmm. makes the Oregon beach public land. So we don't have any private beaches here. It just doesn't exist. And in fact, a few years ago, when I was talking to you about this, when I was teaching a course, um, and at the sea education association in Woods Hole, I was, we were trying to access the beach and it was like private. Right. And I was like, of course, you know, like this is not every place is Oregon. (laughs) So it's really nice here in Oregon. Like if you want to go to the beach as an individual and you don't want to pay any money, you do, you go to the beach. And I think that's one of the, actually one of the coolest benefits of living in this state is free access to the ocean. And, and it's, it's valuable and it's special. You know, I've never made that connection before, even though, you know, we were talking about this. I am from Massachusetts and I 
did not connect that I have, yeah, you have to pay to get to the beaches. Um, and also, I mean, the Oregon coast is so beautiful and especially when it gets really warm down here in, uh, California, especially kind of the central area toward the end of the summer, I always am like, I got to go see a starfish. And so sometimes <laughs> I go up to the Oregon coast cause I just oh, really? got to see a starfish. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, we haven't had as many starfish, you know, in the last number of years because I think there was a disease that killed a whole oh. lot of the starfish. I think that some of them are starting to come back, but it, it it there used to be a significant amount more here in Oregon than there are now, unfortunately. Wow, I didn't know that either. You're teaching me so many things today. <laughs> well, thank you, Haley. Yeah, sure. thank you for being on. I I've learned a lot, and I know that our the listeners will have learned a lot as well. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's really wonderful talking to you about the ocean and the coast and yeah. exciting topics. So yeah. Many thanks to the Belinsky Foundation and the Belinsky Fellowship at Bodega Bay Marine Lab for providing the funding that made this series possible. <laughs>